Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we're going to be discussing the charges that the insurrectionist rioters in Washington, D.C. may face. The new Stand Your Ground law in Ohio, signed by Governor Mike DeWine, and the firing of the officers who shot Breonna Taylor. During segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring your Eighth Amendment rights and how it applies to the definitions of cruel and unusual punishment and the broad array of areas that the Eighth Amendment applies to, including how the concept is defined and when the right can be exercised. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and follow our social media channels. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, as a community, we are still processing the events that took place January 6th, 2020-21 in the capital of the United States of America as insurrectionist pro-Trump rioters raid the United States Capitol and disrupt the proceedings going on therein. Well, Brian, you would have to be living under a rock not to have seen what happened yesterday. And I do believe we are all in solemn shock. It is just an unbelievable turn of events. And I feel like I say that every single week when we talk about things that are going on in the news, but this is really something that has made history, yet another thing that has made history under this president. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I know we're gonna be talking about the Eighth Amendment today. I think we should talk a little bit about the 25th Amendment by the end of this little bit of a discussion on what happened yesterday. Well, the removal of the president has to start with the with the uh, cabinet, and I don't think the Trump cabinet is going to do what's necessary to get him removed. Now, the House of Representatives has filed articles of impeachment just uh, this afternoon, the day that we're recording this. So, uh, impeachment may still happen, but uh, I, I don't think that our. Uh, Amendment 25 is going to be enacted in this situation. People are very angry. And I do hope that one way or another he, that he is removed so that nothing else crazy can happen. I mean, you would think in the last few months of a presidency, you don't see this kind of thing, but it seems like every day it's getting worse and he's still got about 13 days left, right? He does have just about two weeks left in office. And it, it's interesting, this actually applies to criminal false allegation cases because as, as the circle grows smaller and in, in a criminal case with false allegations, as the day of trial comes closer and closer, accusers who have lied about the accused feel the world closing in around them and the reality that you know, soon they are going to have to get on a witness stand and testify to their lies and, and try and convince a jury of their lies. And I would imagine that a similar level of pressure is being felt by Donald Trump right now um, as the protections of the presidency are coming to an end here in two weeks. I mean, the list... I mean, would you call them allegations? <laughs> they will be, and in any case, um, the list is long for for the different things that he's done during his presidency that he could be convicted of when he is out of the presidency. It, and there are both state and federal charges that his conduct could end up garnering uh, indictments for. So uh, once that protection is lifted, um, I think he's in some, he, his freedom is in some danger. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like there were also allegations from right before he became president. 
you're you're exactly right, Erica. Prior to his election, remember that Michael Cohen bribed individuals with campaign money, um, and and that would be a that would be a campaign finance uh, crime. So you know he's got he's got conduct while in office, conduct from prior to going into the office. Um, several members of the Trump family are under investigation currently for um, charitable contributions fraud and 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 misuse of, of that sort of money. So um, I, I, I think the, the, Trump, uh, the Trump saga does not end on January 20th. And I think the conclusion to that story is going to be many years into the future. I believe you are correct. I mean, I don't even know how they're gonna start unpacking it. I mean, and also I believe his school was a fraud. And I think it was dismantled either during the campaign or during his presidency. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, the, the courts took apart that. That was a civil case. Uh, I don't believe there were any criminal allegations that arose from it, but yes. Wow. I think that we will never find a president quite like Donald Trump in the past or in the future, I hope. Well, let's hope not in the future. So yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Because I know that there are so many facets about what happened yesterday and why this is such an infamous, I will say, event um, in our in our history as a as a government and as a as these United States. So um, what kind of federal charges could those who participated in the riot face? There are charges that those individuals can face on a variety of levels. Uh, at, a, at a very low level, trespassing, disrupting congressional operations. Um, and I think under, under normal circumstances, that's probably what they would be looking at. They're, Consequences would range anything from a fine to some minor jail time. Uh, but really looking at the events that happened um, on January 6th, felony destruction of property comes to mind, uh, variety of weapons related offenses for carrying firearms into the Capitol, um, assault, rioting, and these sorts of offenses can carry uh, larger fines and incarceration from several months to several years in prison. The individuals that actually breached the building itself could be looking at very severe consequences. Uh, there were reports that several law enforcement officers were assaulted, and that is a felony. Um, there were reports of three or four pipe bombs being found on Capitol grounds, and if those pipe bombs are traced back to a particular individual or group of individual, uh, that is possession of an unregistered destructive device, unlawfully making that destructive device. Um, and there's a very real possibility that many of these individuals are felons already. And uh, under the federal code, felon in possession of an explosive or weapon uh, can carry decades in prison and oftentimes mandatory prison time. The most severe, and particularly because the target of this riot was the government itself rather than private property, potential charges could include seditious conspiracy where uh, multiple people conspire to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the government of the United States. Um, people who oppose by force the authority of the government of the United States. Um, or forced to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of laws of the United States. And doing so by force, by seizing, by taking or possessing any property of the United States, which the Capitol building would be, um, can be counted as seditious conspiracy. Federal terrorism charges could be coming down uh, on many of these rioters, which operate both as a charge and an enhancement to any other crime. So think about the assault on a police officer, which is a, a mid-level felony, but tacking onto it an additional enhancement provision of assaulting a police officer for a terroristic purpose. 
Um, we are talking penalties in the range of you know, decades in prison up to life in prison sentences. So th the charges uh, really are, are a rainbow of the code and could have consequences in, in a broad brush, anything from fines to uh, a life in prison term for some of these rioters. I mean, and I don't want to keep bringing it back to this, but I'm just interested in knowing what happens to Trump after this for inciting the whole thing. I mean, he gave a huge speech, really egging everybody on, and then directed everyone to walk up the street saying he was going to be with them. And he wasn't, of course, probably watching it on TV after that, but, you know, just told them, walk up there, go right up to the Capitol and let, let our, our, um, let our intentions be known and, and let's stop uh, this, you know, all of the, all of the falsehoods that he had said about losing the election and all, the presidency is stolen, democracy is stolen, all of the, all of the lies that he's been peddling getting these people excited to go up there and, and fight for something that just wasn't true. Does anything happen to him? So I think the federal government has a really difficult time criminally charging Donald Trump for the conduct of the rioters yesterday. In order to prove a conspiracy, uh, not only does the government have to prove that the conspiracy itself existed, which you know, in, in light of the fact that we're talking about a, a speech that incited a crowd to riot, um, it, it, from the government's perspective, making that argument, you know, if you if you want to assume for a second that 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 is in fact a conspiracy, that they they had a plan that Donald Trump went up on that dais with the intent to incite them to a riot, there has to be overt acts. There has to be behavior in addition to the words. Having the conversation about engaging in a crime in and of itself can't be a conspiracy. And, and I think finding those overt acts in this particular situation is going to be really difficult for federal prosecutors if they wanted to charge Donald Trump for that conduct. Now, this is not saying that the District of Columbia um, doesn't have ordinances that could be pursued in this situation. I, I don't know that I haven't looked at that aspect of the law, but uh, a federal prosecution for a conspiracy is a very difficult charge to make. And I, I think uh, proving it in this case with a defendant of Donald J. Trump would be exceptionally difficult. Well, thank you for that update. Now, if anyone is charged, will they be charged in DC or in their home states? Because I know people came in from everywhere to participate in that riot. So the, the United States attorney for the Southern District of Ohio actually tweeted yesterday that he is engaged in an investigation with the FBI to find out if any of the rioters originated from the Southern District of Ohio and assured the public that if any of them did, uh, if the District of Columbia um, district did not prosecute them, they would be prosecuted in the Southern District of Ohio. So I think we've got a few jurisdictions that could prosecute individuals, um, first and foremost being the District of Columbia um, as a district itself. They have local criminal code. Um, the federal district court for the District of Columbia could also prosecute them and their home jurisdictions could prosecute them. Again, if the local United States attorneys could attach some portion of the conduct to that locality. You know, the ATF, the FBI, the Capitol Police, Secret Service, Homeland Security, and DC Police are all engaging in this investigation. Now, in addition to those individuals conducting their investigations, there is a, an absolute treasure trove of video recordings from the press, from the rioters themselves, um, and the people that were observing um, as the counter protesters. So the amount of evidence that is in existence here is 
is incredible. When you combine that with facial recognition, metadata tracking, um, I, I think these individuals could be charged in, in a variety of places, depending on how the investigations proceed and whether the individual prosecuting attorneys want to participate in those, uh, in those prosecutions. Uh, they can face a, a very difficult trial, the people that might be accused of this because of so much video existing. Um, venue will be very important to these individuals, and and they very well make art. May where they very well may make arguments that they should be tried in their own jurisdictions. You know, imagine a, a jury pool pulled from the D.C. metro area, as opposed to a jury pool pulled from the entire state of West Virginia or the entire state of Montana. The individuals that you're going to get in the jury are going to have very different outlooks on the conduct from uh, the, the January 6th events, depending on where they come from. You may recall the acquittals of the Bundy ranchers who were charged with similar offenses to what we could likely see uh, yesterday's rioters charged with. Um, and there is no doubt that the Bundy ranchers did in fact seize federal property. They never denied that. They vandalized federal property. They never denied that. Uh, what their claim at that trial was that they had an absolute right to do so and that they were, they were allowed to do it. And a jury bought that argument. Now that was a jury from their jurisdiction. So the individual jurors who gets on that panel, if any of these individuals are charged, are going to be critically important to the outcome of those prosecutions. Well, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And it's going to be interesting in the coming months to see how this all plays out for so many of these protesters that were smiling for the camera. I mean, there were, I feel like a lot of pictures where they were actually posing. I mean, did you see the picture of the guy in a Viking cap? I mean, that was insane. And then somebody else with, their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. I mean, it just the damage that they did on, on the government property was pretty amazing. One of the points that people are talking about, just the reaction of the law enforcement. And you, you know that they knew this was coming, but it really didn't seem like they were prepared it, it definitely didn't seem like they had enough. They, they were getting overpowered over and over again. They kept getting pushed back further into the government grounds. So I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Do you think that it was planned ahead of time uh, to play out that way by the executive branch? Or do you, do you think, I mean, what, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I, I know I wasn't alone in my surprise at the lack of visible law enforcement, um, you know, out on the Capitol. Uh, there was ample evidence that this there was going to be a significant protest yesterday on, on January 6th. There was ample intelligence resources and personnel available prior to, uh, you know, let's say noon on January 6th. If the Capitol had had the same police presence on January 6th that it had mere months before for the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, this situation um, would have certainly been addressed more swiftly and efficiently, possibly before life was lost and officers were physically assaulted and injured. Um, and, and I think citizens of the, the entire country but in particular here in Columbus are really scratching their heads, remembering the militarized responses by police over the summer to what were largely peaceful protests um, and, and how we didn't see that yesterday. Now, I note this not because I want to see police come out in a militarized fashion and, and exert the kind of violence that we saw against the Black Lives Matter protesters, but instead to highlight 
the disparate response and the fact that apparently police officers are available and, and understand how to respond in a measured and peaceful manner, regardless of the conduct of the protesters or rioters as, as individuals may call them. We all deserve answers to these questions. Why weren't there more law enforcement officers present? Why weren't they prepared for this event? Why didn't they act on the intelligence they had? Why were white nationalists and Trump supporters uh, treated differently than the Black Lives Matter protesters? And I think there's, there's the possibility for a variety of answers to those questions. And a full investigation is absolutely needed to, to answer those questions. I, for one, think that there's, you know, there's, there's a couple of possible answers. Answer number one is exactly as you suggested, Erica, is that uh, there was a there was an overt conspiracy to keep law enforcement numbers down so that something like this might happen. That is absolutely a possibility. I think there's also the possibility that law enforcement is starting to learn its lesson. You know, in, in further segments, we're going to discuss the termination of the officers that shot Breonna Taylor. We know that here in Columbus, one of the two officers that recently killed unarmed black men um, have been fired. They're seeking criminal prosecution. That investigation is ongoing. Um, we are seeing the results of the, the Black Lives Matter protests come to fruition. There, there seems to be a movement, even among the powers that be, to treat people more fairly. So, you know, on the one hand, we say, you know, we want law enforcement to be measured in their response, but they also need to have enough of a presence to protect us. And, and I think, you know, something you said a little, uh, earlier, Erica, you were comparing the Black Lives Matter protesters uh, and, and the people that did riot and destroy during those protests to you know, the, the destruction and the rioting that occurred on January 6th. And you know, a lot of people say, well, why do you have to destroy stuff? You know, why does it have to go to violence? And you know, what a lot of people I think on both sides would say is because it's the only way we can seem to get our message across. You got 10,000 people standing outside on the National Mall holding signs and chanting and that gets a moderate level or in some cases, no news coverage. You know, let's remember Erica that every single year for decades now, people who are in support of marijuana legalization have gathered on the National Mall in force. Tens of thousands of individuals show up every year on April 20th to support and advocate for the legalization of marijuana. But that event, almost never gets any press. But then we compare that to the massive amount of press coverage that you see for the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, and now the event that happened yesterday. And it, it really sends a message. And I don't know that that's the message that the press should be sending to Americans. I agree with you. I mean, let's... I, I like to compare everything to dog training or raising children sometimes. It's like you have to reward someone for the right behavior and don't, don't give them the attention when they are killing people or hurting people or you know not following the rules give them the attention when they've gone out and gotten the permits for the peaceable um, protests and you know make sure that going forward that's what everybody knows you're supposed to do and then give them more press for doing that maybe have some kind of a system set up a absolutely and you know erica i have I have railed against the fourth estate on this podcast numerous times. Um, you know, I, I think they have, remember, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again today. The press is the only constitutionally protected profession in the United States that doesn't have the obligations that attorneys have 
that law enforcement has, uh, the, the pre-qualifications that are necessary to become those other constitutionally protected professions aren't present for the press. And the fourth estate really has to do a better job of governing itself, getting away from corporate interests and money as being the driving factor of what gets on the front page and, and really focus on the, the broad array of issues. And that's critically important because if you don't, what you end up happening, what you end up have happening is, is what we saw yesterday. And I think what happened yesterday is even more frightening when you consider what Governor DeWine did just last week, and, and I don't know if you saw this, Erica, but Governor DeWine signed the Stand Your Ground law here in Ohio. I did see that. And um, if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit more about Stand Your Ground, and I know we're going to get into, you know, versus protecting yourself at home. I think it was something called a castle clause. I was reading. I don't want to give it away too much. You've got you've got your uh, your talking points to go through, uh, but I found this portion very interesting. So yeah, so stand your ground allows a civilian to use lethal force if they feel that they are in a threat of harm and they individually feel that deadly force is necessary. Uh, they can use that deadly force, you know, to shoot somebody in any place that they have a lawful right to be. This change allows civilians to use lethal force in public without first considering whether they can get away from the danger. This is not an issue of self-defense. Self-defense is still, has always been available uh, but self-defense requires a, a duty to retreat, a duty to disengage from a conflict before resorting, resorting to lethal force. So now uh, civilians do not have to try and, and remove themselves from an aggressive violent situation. They can shoot to kill from the outset. Now the law does require specific findings to be made by a jury, including who was the initial aggressor, whether the accused had a reasonable fear of harm, whether deadly force was or was not necessary, and whether they were in that location legally, whether they had a right to be at that location. So what Stand Your Ground really boils down to is the elimination of the duty to retreat in a self-defense situation. Wow. I think I'm just going to stay home. It's, I mean, it sounds like with all the chaos going on right now and all the violence, why would they give someone more rights in a situation of violence where it sounds like they're taking away the opportunity for someone to think about whether what they're doing is necessary or not. And I know that not you know, some situations you don't really have time to think. I get it. But we have talked about so many situations where had they waited 30 seconds to see if someone had a gun and not a cell phone, or, you know, there's just, a, there's so many different situations where people get it wrong. And this just makes it sound like there's going to be more situations where citizens are now just shooting to kill whenever they feel like it. Well, and Erica, prosecutors, victim advocates, the Brady Center, gun reform groups like Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action, all agree with you and fiercely oppose this change in the law. Gun right activists such as the NRA and the Buckeye Firearms Association support the change. In the criminal defense community, it's really a mixed bag. On the one hand, we agree with this new law in the sense that it holds the government accountable to truly prove that a killing was unlawful and, and to make sure that you eliminate all the reasons why it might be lawful. Uh, but we are approaching this reform with cautious skepticism. So does this change the castle doctrine that I mentioned earlier, where people can just protect themselves in their home? I think that's a really common one 
that people know about it, even from the movies? Sure. So the castle doctrine is the right to defend yourself in your private property, your home, your car. This is not affected by the stand your ground law. The stand your ground law applies to situations outside of your home uh, or your private property. What's important to note, though, is that the Castle Doctrine does share similar requirements, right? So under the Castle Doctrine, you have to be in, in a reasonable fear. So a jury has to find reasonableness to your claimed fear and imminent danger um, that results in making the, term, the determination that the defense applies. So these still are jury questions, but as we saw with um, you know, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, you know, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend never went to trial because the prosecutor knew he was going to get that Castle Doctrine jury instruction and decided I'm never gonna win this, so I'm just gonna dismiss the case. So those jury instructions and the use of them and the creation of them through these laws can prevent juries from making decisions. And, you know, as, as a true believer in the jury system and in the jury being, in, in my opinion, probably the most democratic aspect of the United States governmental system, uh, it, it does bother me when these questions are, are taken away from the jury. Give them all of the information, give them the law, let them make the decision. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So we mentioned the, the Breonna Taylor case. And Erica, did you see in the news this week, our third topic, that officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor have been fired and are no longer working for the police force? Oh, my God. This seems like it has been a long time coming. So just remind us, like, when did this happen? It, it feels like it was summer it was uh, i believe it was spring last year it took a year to almost to get to lose their jobs for something like this i mean that was a a major mistake and somebody innocent lost their life it it's just astounding that it's taken this long i mean i know that that's you know not really like a part of what we're talking about today but i just I'm just shocked. It is shocking, Erica. And you know what's what's really shocking about it is the slow trickle and the struggle to find out the truth of what happened here. So you you remember we learned back in, I believe it was October, that Detective Miles Hasgrove was the officer that fired the fatal shot that ended Brianna Taylor's life. Now, the investigators ultimately came forth and admitted that he fired 16 rounds into the apartment after police had breached the front door and that he fired those rounds without ever identifying a target. So he fired them indiscriminately. So whether he was right or wrong in needing to fire a gun really doesn't even scratch the surface of the problem of his conduct. I don't think any person who's properly trained in firearms would say that you should fire indiscriminately into a habitation as, as a justifiable and appropriate means of use of a firearm. And as an officer who has been trained in the use of firearms and who's held to the highest standard in the use of those weapons, he should lose his job for engaging in that kind of reckless behavior. Joshua James, the detective who lied on the application for the search warrant that led to the raid on Breonna Taylor's home was not at the scene that night. But he has ultimately admitted through the investigation that he, in his lie set this tragedy in motion. He admitted that he never verified the information that he received, that he fabricated that he did so under oath on a request and an affidavit for a search warrant. And that is the kind of misconduct that should lead to the termination of an officer. Breonna Taylor's death is a tragedy, but these officers' behavior should result in their termination, 
whether Brianna Taylor lives or dies. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, they, the term bull in a china shop just comes to mind. I mean, it was reckless and it's unfortunately taken away something that you can never give back. And, you know, Brianna Taylor's life, it's just gone. And you, there's no price that they can pay to, to bring that back. And I, I mean, I'm wondering, do you think that this is going to change things in the future um, when it comes to police shootings and people of color? It's a step in the right direction. Um, it's certainly not the standard response for police conduct yet. Um, but you need to look no further than my own backyard to see that the officer who murdered Andre Hill has been fired. Now, unfortunately, the deputy that shot Casey Goodson continues to enjoy his salary while working desk duty. You know, I agree with what Reverend Al Sharpton said during his eulogy for Andre Hill. He said that simply losing their job is, is not enough punishment for the taking of the life of anybody. It's insufficient justice for these surviving families. You know, why do law enforcement officers get treated differently than any other person? Any other person, and I have, I have represented individuals who have been in the unfortunate and tragic circumstance of having their home invaded by burglars in the middle of the night. And they have pulled their firearms, they have used those firearms with deadly force. And as the result of that behavior, they have been arrested, booked, had their DNA sample loaded to a state database, had their mugshot taken, spent nights or even weeks incarcerated, even though they were ultimately exonerated and their behavior was perfectly legal from the outset. Many people would say not only justified, but laudable. Now, the behavior of Miles Hasgrove should not be lauded by anybody. It was reckless and irresponsible behavior with a firearm. That is a crime. Why has he not been arrested and booked? You can bond him out. I'm not saying he's got to sit in the clink for the entirety of this investigation, but any other citizen would have been arrested and booked. And these law enforcement officers shouldn't be treated any differently. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm glad that change is coming. It's unfortunate that terrible things have to happen that People have to have violence in the streets, uh, protesting this sort of thing and, and risking their lives just to get basic human rights. But we have seen change occur since all of this started happening again and started getting rehashed uh, last year. So, I mean, good things are, are on the way and we are very thankful that uh, you keep on top of it for us and give your perspective and, um, and, and so thank you for that. You're, you're very welcome, Erica. I want to make sure that people know about what's going on in the criminal injustice system. And there's a reason that I use that phrase. Um, I see it every day and you know, there, there needs to be growth in this country. And one of the areas that we are seeing some growth is to the application of the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution. It specifically says that excessive bail shall not be required, excessive fines not imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And today, our featured topic is a deep dive into that amendment that was enshrined in the Bill of Rights. So where is the Eighth Amendment most frequently used currently? Uh, right after the Seventh Amendment and before the Ninth. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so most frequently, 
every, well, so every single day, the Eighth Amendment is exercised in every court across the United States of America. Because at every detention hearing, initial appearance or arraignment, judges set bond. So bond is by far the most frequent use of the Eighth Amendment. Um, fines and punishment across the board in the criminal context um, is affected by the Eighth Amendment. And that amendment is applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Um, at its highest level, and maybe its most important, proportionality in punishment is a factor that is governed by the Eighth Amendment. But really, it's only applied in very rare circumstances, like when we're talking about death penalty or uh, life in prison terms for first offenses. Uh, there was a case called Harmlin versus Michigan, where the Supreme Court of the United States uh, considered that exact issue, whether a person can receive life in prison for a first offense. And they created an exceptionally difficult test to determine if a sentence is grossly disproportionate to the conduct that led to it. Now, the next level is for inmates. And we frequently apply an Eighth Amendment analysis when we're talking about how inmates are treated. Now, the Supreme Court decided Ingram versus Wright which gave us the standard that unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain is cruel and unusual punishment. But they walked that back a few years later in Whitley versus Alberts, where it said that unconstitutional, unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain can still be constitutional. Unnecessary, wanton infliction of pain is, is legal if the pain is caused for a good reason, in a good faith effort to restore order. Now, since then, they've decided Hudson versus McMillan, and they clarified that a prisoner doesn't have to experience a significant injury to suffer an Eighth Amendment violation. If the guards act maliciously and sadistically, then that punishment is cruel and unusual and it violates the Eighth Amendment. Lastly, deliberate indifference to an inmate's needs can be cruel and unusual punishment, as can prison overcrowding. Now, this is an area that is ripe for litigation as we have a gross overpopulation of America's prison systems. And cases are presently pending regarding the crowded confinement conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, but they are not faring well as they work their way through the federal system. So from, uh, from a, an initial perspective, you know, we're talking about bail, we're talking about punishment, and we're talking about the treatment of individuals who are actively being punished. Yeah, I know. And we spoke about this when we did our show where we, we, we talked a little bit about pandemic and some of the crimes during COVID-19, uh, we also touched on the spread of COVID and, you know, really the, the prisons and the jails, along with nursing homes, <laughs> are some of the biggest hotspots for this, uh, this pandemic. And I think that you, you would think it would behoove the people in you know, they're making the laws that are making these decisions um, and, and the public, if we were able to, uh, you know, put a stop to that piece of cruel and unusual punishment, because as we mentioned in some of the earlier shows, you might have a DUI and be put in a jail. You know, unfortunately, it maybe happened on a Friday or Saturday night. You had to be in jail until Monday. And, you know, you ended catching it and then possibly dying. I mean, is a DUI a death sentence? Not normally. Well, it shouldn't be. A DUI should certainly not be a death sentence. And I think maybe the biggest tragedy in all of this is that it depends on where you get your DUI. Right now, there are plenty of judges who are allowing people to defer 
their short sentences to a later date, to a time when uh, the pandemic isn't raging and, and running rampant through our, through our communities. There are also plenty of judges who really just don't care and are choosing to lock people up uh, regardless of the long-term long and potentially deadly consequences of those decisions. So does this Eighth Amendment apply to juveniles? Yeah, absolutely. So 10 years ago, uh, back in uh, 2011, back in the dark times, uh, Graham versus Florida was decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. And they said the Eighth Amendment applies to juvenile offenders. And in that case, specifically, they said that juvenile non-homicide offenders cannot receive a life in prison term without the possibility of parole. They also said that if a court does impose a life sentence, that it has to provide the juvenile with a realistic opportunity for release. The Supreme Court revisited that decision in Miller versus Alabama just two years later and expanded Graham by holding that life in prison without parole is not applicable for juvenile homicide offenders. Now, this brings sentencing in line with the hallowed and historic principle that juvenile offenders are entitled to rehabilitation first and punishment only as a necessary alternative to re rehabilitation. You know, I'm glad that they look at it that way when somebody's a juvenile, they just, they can't reason things out like an adult can in a lot of ways. I mean, unfortunately, some people never grow up, but <laughs> when they are young like that, we, we should give them the benefit of the doubt and an opportunity to really turn their life around. I mean, I know you would, you've talked about this in the past. Absolutely. And, and science has shown us that the brain isn't fully developed until really human beings reach the age of 25. So, should these things be considerations for people beyond the age of 18? You know, it's um, an interesting application for the law whenever a bright line has to be drawn somewhere. And the constitution has drawn that line at, at 18 uh, for voting purposes. And so we've drawn that line at 18 for a variety of reasons. But you know, the evolution of science, the expansion of human knowledge has shown us that 25 really is uh, the, the better location to draw that line. And should we, we, should we be revisiting a variety of these standards uh, to really bring it in line with the science? And I, I would say for many aspects, yes. How many mistakes would be avoided if we were letting people marinate a little longer. Does the Eighth Amendment mean that bail should be outlawed altogether? Erica, no, the, the protection is against excessive bail, not any bail amount. So bail should be intended to ensure the appearance of the accused at the proceedings in, in their criminal case. However, bail is excessive when it is set at a figure higher than what is necessary and reasonably calculated to ensure that specific governmental interest. If the only interest asserted is to make sure that the accused will stand trial and submit to a sentence if found guilty, then bail should be set by a court at an amount that's designed to ensure that goal and no more. Frequently what you have is individuals who are wealthy, able to make bail amounts in the millions of dollars. Now, those individuals have to turn over their passports and they're told you're not allowed to travel and sometimes they're put on ankle monitors. But why should those restrictions be appropriate and necessary for somebody wealthy when somebody who's not wealthy can't afford $1,000, $5,000, $20,000? The wealth gap creates a disparity of justice and that is inappropriate, and that is a violation of the Eighth Amendment and an excessive bail. Now, to challenge that excessive bail, the accused has to exercise that right themselves and request a modification of bond. We have recently litigated 
cases and, and secured bond in some very serious criminal allegations using the recently decided case of Muhammad versus Eckleberry. And my good friend, Eric Allen, was uh, the defense attorney on that case. And Muhammad versus Eckleberry provided an in-depth look at this constitutional right and clarified the standards that Ohio judges must use if bail is set. And using that case, reasonable bond can be set. And I would encourage every defense attorney out there who's listening to our show to go grab Muhammad versus Eckleberry, read it, put it in your briefcase, put it in your phone, make sure you've got that for every single bond hearing. It is a critically important case right now. I mean, that's really great information. So with all this being said, I'm curious about one more fact when it comes to the Eighth Amendment. Should this prevent the death penalty and why or why not? That is an excellent question. And we'll be back next week to answer it when we start our multi-episode dive into the death penalty. And with that, Erica, I want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank everybody out there who's listened to us today. And I want to remind you that to become informed about your constitutional rights, how the government is expanding the criminal code, how police and government can be held accountable and how they try to avoid accountability. The Eighth Amendment and everything you need to know about your constitutional rights and the criminal injustice system, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find us on our social media channels, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. We will be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as part one of our exploration of the death penalty, answering the question whether the Eighth Amendment does outlaw the death penalty and its use by the state and federal government. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And today, when I part ways with my friends, I always add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended. 